The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, and I'm joined by uh, my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Paul Mitchell, a, an expert in the census, an expert in redistricting, and uh, the census data, the latest tranche of data that people were waiting for came out uh, yesterday, I think. And we wanted to ask you about that and the implications. Uh, first of all, as California, as far as California is concerned, we're still a, a state of minorities, 39% plus Latino, 36% plus white, um, 15% now, I think, Asian-American, which I think is an increase. What, just ethnically, what's this, and racially, what's it telling you? Well, I mean, it's telling a story that we've known for a while. Um, we are getting a decennial census, which is that once every 10-year snapshot of one day every decade, April 1st, 2010, compared to April 1st, 2020, and the changes that have happened in that interval um, so those are two snapshots and we can look at the changes that have occurred in the last decade, but there are other data sets that we use regularly, um, census data sets, the American Community Survey, that have been giving us this message for years, looking at um, essentially three, three ethnic uh, racial changes in the demography of California. Um, one is the continued growth of the Latino population that's been happening for decades, and that is happening all across the state. Um, secondly, a, an even more rapid, um, in terms of a relative rate of change, um, growth among the Asian population. And that Asian population is actually most rapidly growing in communities that are heavily Asian. Mm-hmm. So a community that's, that was 17% Asian in 2010, you know, might be 32% or 34% Asian Uh, now. And then the third piece is that we see a continuing trend of the black population disseminating, uh, not being so localized into historic black communities, particularly those in the East Bay in Los Angeles, and being more disseminated around places like, you know, Elk Grove or the rest of Sacramento or Riverside or, you know, different uh, exurban, suburban communities which, you know, is represents changes in some of the socioeconomics around the black community. And, and it represents changes in terms of where jobs and housing and so on are. Um, it ironically might make it harder for us to, from a redistricting perspective, which is always the next shoe to drop, uh, it might make it harder for districts to be drawn that uh, can preserve that black voting rights and the ability for them to uh, have districts where they can elect candidates of choice. Um, whereas Asians and Latinos will probably see a real growth in the number of majority minority or influence districts around the state. So the redistricting impacts, because we always like to get to that is, um, we're probably going to have, you know, a lot more majority minority districts around the state and that this data really ensures 
um, and the American Community Survey data we've been re receiving for years ensures that we're going to have a redistricting with a lot of focus on uh, these majority minority districts in these growing communities. The African American community, you know, as you mentioned, been disseminated, spread out, but the percentage, the overall percentage proportionate to the total population is about the same, isn't it? It's about 6%. It seems to be pretty constant over time. So I, how does that play into um, well, you know, new boundaries? In absolute numbers, the Black population has been growing, but not at the rate of the really, really rapidly growing Asian population or kind of the continually uh, growing Latino population, um, they're not reducing uh, in the population like white population is, uh -huh. um, but they're uh, also not kind of building up only in those historically black communities. Um, there's a lot, uh, a lot of movement within that population. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Do we know if the populations that are growing, are they growing because of immigration or are they growing because of they just have a higher birth rate? Well, that gets into a lot of issues. So um, when we say they're growing, we're talking about growth in two ways. And oftentimes we um, talk about growth and it's unclear about how we're talking about it. So the two ways that a community can grow is either A, in like absolute share uh, or absolute numbers. So uh, there's more Asians, more Latinos, more uh, Black residents. Um and then the other way they can quote unquote grow is by becoming a larger share of the population, even if the numbers aren't growing, but that the other populations are growing at a slower rate than they are. So if an area has, um, you know, a population with a higher birth rate, uh, there might be growing in real sense. But then if let's say it's a Latino community, they have a higher birth rate. And on top of the higher birth rate, the white population is leaving, then their share of that population is growing in both measures. It's growing in raw numbers and also growing in its share. So in California, we've seen populations like the black population continue to grow in raw numbers, but also they're reducing their share of the population in some of these more traditional black areas because they're, they're moving out. Um, so it's, it's both aspects that come into play when we start looking at this data and we ask ourselves, what are the demographics of this city or of this region? Um, we're looking at this multitude of different things, population coming in, population going out, birth rates, and then the shares of the new populations that are there and their demographics. I've seen a couple stories in the last couple of days about the Democrats gearing up for lawsuits and litigation in various states. Louisiana is one. Minnesota, I think, was another one. Texas was one. There'll be others. Um, we've got a bit of a different system here. We have an independent redistricting commission. Do you expect any kind of litigation? Do you see that out there on the horizon, litigation over how these districts are going to be drawn? Is it too early to say that? So um, first off, one thing you will hear about is people talking about litigation regarding the census um, still and whether or not um, these numbers collect, cl correctly reflect the population and undercount and all these other things. Um, so you might start hearing some talk about, you know, lawsuits regarding that. And then, of course, you've got the census, then that will, the redistricting will be built on top of that. And there's always litigation when it comes to redistricting. Um, there will be litigation potentially on 
the data sets being used. There will be litigation on little tiny things like, you know, we, we have uh, this whole issue about differential privacy and the privacy measures that are put in this data set. And we'll probably see continued uh, lawsuits or potential lawsuits about that. Um, the census has said, this is the first time I've heard the census say this. They said, basically, don't trust the data at the census block level. And that's like a crazy thing to say, but they've done so much um, of this blurring of the data at the very localized census block level. Um, and it's done in order to protect people from, uh, you know, having the, the census essentially hacked by using big data sets, lining them up against the census and just trying to figure out who's who in the census. Um, but since they blurred that so much, and now they say you can't trust the data at the census block level, why in bejesus do we draw congressional districts to a one-person deviation? We'll probably see a lawsuits on that, like drawing districts to a one-person deviation when the census says you can't trust data at the census block level is kind of ridiculous. Um, then you're also going to see lawsuits over interpretation of the Voting Rights Act, which has changed. Yeah. And even whether or not that Arizona case that recently happened um, will there's some concern about whether or not that would weaken uh, the Voting Rights Act uh, and its uh, and its implementation and enforcement. Uh, there will be lawsuits over the rules being used by these commissions. There will be lawsuits over, you know, did commissions use political data in a way they're not supposed to, or did they use in data around incumbents the way they're not supposed to? There's going to be really innovative litigation, probably utilizing big computer programs that can uh, run thousands and thousands and thousands of redistricting plans and show that a state's redistricting plan is a huge outlier mm -hmm. and that it must have been drawn in a way to favor a partisan group or an incumbent in a way that isn't allowed for in the law but just because of the way that it was drawn was, you know, you give a computer the same rules, it will draw that plan, you know, one out of every 60 trillion times you know, like just drawing plans that are basically impossible. So uh, there's going to be tons of litigation. I, we could have a whole book written about the potential litigation that'll happen after this. What do you think that'll do to the deadlines? In fact, I know we've asked you this before on this issue, but now August 12th and the census data is released going forward. What are the deadlines that we face as far as getting the districts drawn and having a candidate certified list of candidates published? And as we go forward for 2022, yeah. So what we know is that we have the data out now. The, the statewide database has that data. They're going to go through a process of getting that all organized. This is like the IKEA furniture version of the data. It comes uh, in a raw, what they're calling a legacy format. So it does require work to get it to uh, align and all be set up for actually doing the redistricting process. Statewide database is going to do that work for the state and for local governments. Then they're going to do a modification of that data to reallocate the prison population, to take the prisoners out of the census blocks they're arrested in or they're incarcerated in and move them back to the addresses that they were living at prior to their incarceration. Uh, a number of states do this and California is going to start doing it uh, this cycle. Um, after that's done, then essentially it starts a clock of the data being out there, organizations being able to start having input, start proposing plans. The statewide redistricting commission will likely have a mid-November, late November first draft 
local redistrictings, whether it's Sacramento County or Yolo County or LA County or LA City, those agencies will have drafts probably mid-October. Um, then we go through a period after the drafts of actually getting to final maps. Final maps, you'll see some local ones mid-December. The state will either be December 27th or January 14th. There's some litigation around that right now. Um, and then once those plans are final, they're going to have to adjust the deadlines for filing and everything like that. But when those plans are final, then we're going to have shortened deadlines for, you know, signatures in lieu and filing deadlines all leading up to that June primary election. June 7th is the primary. And I think six months ago, there was a lot of discussion about potentially moving that now there's very limited or no discussion about moving that primary date. Um, and that is a very narrow window. I think the point of your question was like, if there's going to be litigation, where do you squeeze in that litigation window, you know, and there might be a real short window for some litigation. Um, other States, you know, we might see litigation starting pretty soon. Um, we, they don't have to wait for a final plan. Probably. You know, earlier we talked about the loss of a congressional seat. That looks like that's, happening. Does that, um, do we know anything more about where that those numbers would come, where that seat would be lost from and how, and the reconfiguration we're talking about, maybe a seat from east of Los Angeles, LA County, high desert, Sacramento area, North North state. Do you have any sense about where that, where we're losing a seat and where we're going to have to make up for it? I thought we were going to on this uh, podcast agree that it was going to be your member of Congress. <laughs> I thought you just decided you didn't need them anymore. I keep writing. I don't want to even ask you who your member of Congress is. For the record, I don't know who your member of Congress is. I was just making a joke. Um, but, uh, um, you know, the it's not like, you know, we it, it's not like you walk up to a poker game and there's, you know, you just walk up to somebody and take one of the cards out of their hand. It's yeah. like you reshuffle the whole deck and redeal the cards. Um, in a very, very political redistricting that we would have seen 20 years ago, um, it would have been a meeting in the speaker's office with the pro tem and with the congressional leadership. And they would have basically said, OK, which member of Congress is going to lose? And then they would have gone around and figured out how to um, make all the districts work after they got rid of that one member of Congress. That, yeah. It would have been a very explicit decision in that kind of environment. This commission is going to be building districts from neighborhoods and communities of interest and and cities and counties. And and those are the component pieces of the redistricting. Uh, they'll obviously have to draw certain majority minority districts. And there will be some districts that are pretty protected because they um, because there are Voting Rights Act issues. So I don't think a member of a, a member of Congress who's in a protected majority minority district should be staying up and night worrying about this. Um, but it's, it's not like the old days where we're just going to decide this one member of Congress isn't going to have a seat. All the seats are going to be changed up. Yeah. Um, the, somebody will not be in their seat. Do but, you know if anybody, do you get any sense anybody feels that might, they might be at risk, maybe not in the house, but in the, legislative, yeah, I mean, the legislative districts or everybody's always well, worried about everything, but yeah, I mean, that's the funny thing is like, People say who's which member of Congress is going to lose their district. We could have more than one member of Congress lose their district. We could have members of the Assembly or State Senate lose their district because the district lines shift underneath them because we're not drawing lines to protect incumbents anymore. Uh -huh. um, and uh, 
yeah, I don't know who's really shaking in their boots. I will point to the one kind of legitimate uh, person who like does a lot of commenting on redistricting uh, Dave Wasserman at the Cook Political Report. Um, He did when the census data um, or when the apportionment first came out, he did in a tweet say that he thought the 25th was the district that was most likely to kind of get dissolved. Um, But that's him speaking. And, you know, uh, but uh, really, you could have lines changing, especially with these ebbs and flows of population around the state. You could have lines changing in a way where you have all kinds of elected officials, county supervisors, city council members, school board members, water district members, legislators, members of Congress lose their seat, even though we're not eliminating a you know board of supervisor seat in Riverside, but there might be a board of supervisor in Riverside who doesn't have a seat when this is all over. You know, we never talk about the board of equalization, which is probably the most boring seat. What do you mean we never talk about it? We wrote an article about the Board of Equalization. Okay, there are only four districts, but they go link. You should link to the article in this podcast information because we wrote an article about the Board of Equalization and how there was a play on the very, very, very last day of the last redistricting meeting for the last commission, the day before they finalized their lines, where they cleared out the entire state and from scratch, redrew all the board of equalization districts in a political play led by, and you have to do the little drum roll, Matt Rexroad. Matt Rexroad did a full on play where he got paid by some groups to retool the membership of the board of equalization and those districts. And he pulled this off in like half an hour um, and uh, got the commission to realize that they needed to redraw all the Board of Equalization seats. And it is one of my favorite redistricting stories. And readers should find that article in Capitol. We are. We're going to find that article. Absolutely. (laughs) Paul Mitchell, thank you so much. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. And uh, this is John Howard saying we will talk to you next time around. So John went ahead and left me in charge of the worst week in California politics segment this week. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. And if you listen to last week's show, you will remember that we actually had a plethora of people to choose from who had had pretty awful political weeks in California. This week, it was a lot uh, more sparse, but I think we have a clear winner. Former Mayor Rich Carr of Adelanto, which is a city uh, in San Bernardino County, was arrested on Friday uh, charged with accepting at least $57,500 in bribes and kickbacks uh, while he was an elected official related to uh, permitting issues with a marijuana sales business. And uh, this started some time ago. This whole plan was really hatched back into 2015. His house and his businesses were raided in 2018, and they finally actually issued the arrest warrant on Friday. And he, of course, claims he is innocent and uh, plans to fight this, but not a good week for Mr. Carr. He is out of office. He lost his reelection campaign uh, in November 2018, so he is a private citizen. But we think as the uh, former mayor of Adelanto and as someone who's being charged for crimes which were committed while he was an elected official, I'm going to go ahead and count him. So uh, 
<clears throat> John is relaxing. He's not here right now. Hey, one note, we are actually going to take a little vacation next week. So it will be two weeks before you have the next edition of the Capital Weekly Podcast. But in the meantime, we will be doing the Capital Weekly Top 100, which will be an online event. You can be held on August 25th at 530, where we will announce our choices for California's top 100 political influencers uh, for 2021 and the end of 2020. So uh, go to the Capital Weekly website, look under the events page, and look for Capital Weekly Top 100. This is something we do every year. We've been doing it for 13 years now, I believe, and uh, it's something we look forward to and we hope you do too. So go to capitalweekly.net and look on the events tab. You'll see the Top 100. You can sign up to do it there. It's free. There's no charge. And uh, we hope, hope you'll uh, then weigh in and give us your opinion on on who should have been on there or maybe who shouldn't have. Thanks so much. We're going to take, again, next week we'll be off, and we'll talk to you soon. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.